The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Sendo. For more information, visit villagesendo.org. Hello, everybody. Uh, back to gallery view. I can't stare at myself while I'm doing this. There, that's better. <laughs> um, so... I have set myself an impossible task that I may well fail at, but, uh, but I had to give it a try. Um, some of you know that um, for the last year I've been working on a book, um, often whining about working on a book. Um, it's about complexity theory that I've been speaking about in part in Buddhist terms for about 20 years. And uh, I finally have the opportunity to turn it into a book. It will be, it's called Notes on Complexity, Life, the Life, Consciousness, and Meaning in a Self-Organizing Universe. Um, <laughs> how's that for overpromising? And um, the reason I'm mentioning it is that when our Ongo text, uh, was announced for this year, Komyozo Zanmai, the practice of the treasury of luminosity. Um, it's, you know, a typically impenetrable Zen text that's really beautiful and at the same time inspiring, even though, you know, what exactly is it talking about? I felt like it would make a perfect um, epilogue to the book. Um, I was really struck by how everything I'm trying to develop in the book is actually expressed far more beautifully and simply um, and in brief uh, in our study text. So um, I want to try and do the second half of my book in 20 minutes or less. Um, and <laughs> we'll see how that goes. So Komyozo uh, Zanmai, and I've already wasted three. Um, the, so a couple of paragraphs from uh, The Treasury of Luminosity. Breathing in, breathing out, hearing, touching, without thoughts of separation, is just the silent illumination of luminosity in, what, in which body and mind are single. Thus, when someone calls, you immediately answer. This display of luminosity must not just be something you experience in sitting, but in each step. This step, this step, are all the walking of luminosity. All through the day, be dead to personal views or fragmented thoughts. And really, that's my book <laughs> in a nutshell. Um, I usually like to do Dharma talks these recent years on koans um, to give me some focus. But the big koan for me, really, for the last 20 years, and I've, I've, if, uh, has been about how science as we know it in the 21st century um, gives us what we conceive of as being a true picture of the nature of reality and implicitly our zen practice why are we doing this because it gives us a true view of the nature of reality are they one view or are they two views if they're two views how can they both be true natures of reality that kind of makes no sense if it's one view, why does one seem so opaque from the stance of the other? And I've been gnawing on this uh, 
for the last 20 years. The first part of the book is all about complexity theory. And in a very precise nutshell, this I think I can do quickly. Complexity theory is about how things that interact with each other and fulfill certain criteria self-organize into larger scale things. So ants organize into ant colonies, people organize into neighborhoods and societies and cultures, cells organize into bodies, molecules organize into cells, et cetera. And implicit at that is notice if we talk about an ant from a distance, an ant colony looks like a thing, it looks like an object. But if you go in close, you realize there's no object there. It's just a phenomenon arising from smaller interacting things. If you go into the body of the ant up close or our own bodies, the thingness of our body disappears and it's just cells that are self-organizing. So whether something looks like a reified thing versus a phenomenon arising from smaller things depends on the perspective, the level of scale you're observing. So are cells a thing? No, they're just self-organizing molecules. Those are just self-organizing atoms. Those are just self-organizing subatomic particles. A few layers of subatomic particles down, what we get is something the physicists call the quantum foam. You don't get smaller and smaller things infinitely. You get the smallest thing, no one's sure exactly what those are, could be strings, that's what string theory is. Um, but whatever these smallest things are, they're, they're arising, they're emanating out of the vacuum of space-time. We think of vacuums being empty, but they're not. They're energy-rich fields, quantum physics tells us. And that energy e equals mc squared turns into mass all the time, but usually as matter-antimatter pairings, which then annihilate back into energy. But if they escape that annihilation, they interact with each other to create subatomic particles, to create atoms, to, to create molecules, and thus the whole universe arises. And with that kind of analysis, we can easily map things, and I've got two dozen talks online about this, to Buddhist concepts of emptiness of inherent existence, impermanence, interdependence, karmic law, etc. So that's the first half of the book, and I have 15 minutes to go. <laughs> the second half of the book deals with the thing that isn't contained within that, and that's consciousness. So in contemporary science and philosophy, there are basically three ways to explain consciousness. And obviously consciousness is important to us in Zen practice, because what are we always talking about? Mind. Um, we're talking about the nature of consciousness. We're experiencing, we're trying to experience directly the nature of our conscious minds. So contemporary terms, we talk about materialism, the material substance of the universe gives rise to our mind. That's the theory that brains make minds. And that's our dominant theory in this culture. And you've got billions of dollars being spent to map how neural correlates of consciousness, things that we can measure in the brain, map to experiences within the mind. And everyone thinks, many people think, <laughs> it's a commonplace that those things that are going on in your brain are what create your mind. And people just sort of accept that. And scientifically, that's the dominant view. Brain makes mind. A second view is that brain doesn't make mind. Smaller parts of the universe self-organize in a complex way to give rise to something the way ants give rise to an ant colony. You can't predict the existence of the colony from the way the ants interact. And yet, put a bunch of ants together, boom, 
there's a colony. Maybe the cells of our brains interacting in such a complex fashion, boom, magically give rise to mind emerging from those interactions. This is called panpsychism. There's a relationship between material existence and mind, but it isn't one producing the other in the same way that materialism reifies it. There's something magical about mind in this, and it may not just be cells. It could be molecules. It could be some atomic particles. Some people who believe in panpsychism say that there, is, there are quantum measurements of consciousness that we haven't yet learned to put in our quantum physics equations, and that all subatomic particles have mind. Electrons have mind. Electrons have an experience of being an electron. And if you put electrons and protons and neutrons together, they collectively give rise to the experience of being an atom, which then give rise to being the experience of a molecule, et cetera, et cetera. There are some people who say that space-time itself gives rise to mind. But this is all, to me, just sort of pushing the problem down further. It doesn't explain anything. And the really hard thing to explain is actually called the hard problem of consciousness. We can explain correlations between these physical structures and an experience of mind if we're careful about it. But how do you explain the experience of the experience. When you see the color red, we can explain how light of a certain frequency sends photons into your eye, which hits certain receptors in your retina, which send chemical signals to your brain that say red. But nowhere in that pathway can you explain the experience of redness. If you're looking at a rose, or the experience of the scent of a rose, or the experience of the pain if you prick your finger. So that's the hard problem of consciousness. How do you explain the experiences within consciousness? And neither of those two theories have ever come close to being able to explain that. The third theory, there's a fourth called denialism, which says there's no such thing as consciousness. It's a delusion. That of course begs the question, who's having the delusion? So I'm gonna leave that. The third is idealism, as in platonic idealism. This suggests that there is an underlying structure to reality, an underlying substance of reality that is nothing but pure mind. It's the platonic ideal. It's the realm of ideas. It's not the realm of material substance. And most people in our culture, there's been a shift from materialism to panpsychism in recent years, but most people dismiss idealism as merely metaphysics. Merely metaphysics is a classic term. Um, our prejudice against this comes from our cultural view that the only ways to be sure of our understanding of the nature of reality come through science and mathematics. And even everyone in our Zenda would probably, if I said something like that, would go, sure, that's how we send rockets to the moon, build cell phones, MRIs, yeah, 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 science and mathematics. That's how we put the universe together. But it doesn't explain the experience of consciousness. And so this is a problem. Part of the problem lies in that we all have grown up in this cultural view. And that cultural view is not actually centuries old. It's about 100 years old. 
there's a group of philosophers, scientists, mathematicians, sociologists um, in Vienna uh, around 100 years ago called the Vienna Circle. And their idea was seeing the success of relativity in particular, quantum physics to some extent, and the success of the industrial revolution, machines can change the world, we can do things like this. They set out to purge philosophy of everything that was not scientific. And their agenda was literally to purge things of metaphysics, quote unquote. If they were having a debate around a table and someone said something um, that about God or origins of life or you know things in the realm of metaphysics. If you dared to quote Kant or Hegel, um, you would be dismissed as metaphysics. It was the worst insult they could throw at each other. And this became sort of our cultural view. And the reason it became our cultural view is one, they were spectacularly good at self um, promoting uh, they had a brand and they knew how to play it universally. And then Hitler marched into Vienna and most of some of them were killed. Most of them fled and they were given homes in many of the great universities in departments of philosophy and philosophy of science around the planet. And so their view spread. And that's kind of our cultural view. If you talk to scientists who are trained today, implicitly they are based in Vienna Circle philosophy, even though they don't even probably know the names of the Vienna Circle. The one you probably may have heard of was sort of a semi-member, Wittgenstein, but I'm not gonna go into him. <laughs> 10 hours. Um, and he wasn't really one of them. They didn't face the problem of quantum physics, which said that at the, Science, empirical science, means there's a split between the subject and the object. There's a scientist studying an experiment and it has to be objective. There has to be separation. And that was true until quantum physics came along. And then all of a sudden they started doing experiments about the nature of light. And it turns out that if you treat the, if you don't look at light in a certain experiment, it behaves like waves just spreading in all directions. And it interacts with each other as waves. And you get these beautiful patterns like waves interacting with each other, interfering with each other. But if you look at the experiment, they turn into particles. And they look like little bullets hitting a, a screen on the opposite side. It all depends on whether you're looking or not. It all depends on whether there is a conscious observer making an observation. At the quantum level, there is no separation of subject and object. It can't be done. And this led Max Planck, who's arguably the founder of quantum physics. And this, this is surprising for someone of his generation who should have been more conservative. He actually said, there is no getting behind consciousness. The act of, the act of observation is what creates the nature of reality, to, the choice to observe or not observe. And so, if you can't get beyond consciousness, then consciousness has to be the primary thing out of which everything arises. And that's idealism. That's platonic idealism. That's metaphysics. The Vienna Circle knew this and they completely ignored it. Um, and I really don't understand how they got away with that, but they did. Um, but they still had mathematics. And so the idea of mathematics, well, that 
is a firm foundation. We invented math, we invented it by counting bushels of wheat and stars in the sky and learned how to add and multiply. Uh, geometry developed and you can build and build on it and you can create these beautiful proofs so that even if you have something as simple as A equals A or A plus B equals B plus A, those don't require proof, they're obvious. But there are things that are more complicated in mathematics that require proof to know they're true. An example of this would be the Goldbach conjecture. This says that any even number is the sum of two prime numbers. Now people have tried this by hand up to about 100,000 numbers and have not found an exception, but that's not a proof. People have used computers to count to four times 10 to the 17th. That's four followed by 17 zeros. Every single even number up to that high is the sum of at least two prime numbers. But no one's ever proven it. We just tested it. Maybe there's a bigger number out there. So this was their problem. They thought that to set mathematics as the defining feature of how we understand reality, I might pull this off. <laughs> um, you may not understand it, but I might pull this off. Um, you had to be able to prove every mathematical statement. What that means is you have to have a complete set of proofs. Any system of mathematics needs to be complete in that every single statement within the system of math has to be provable and is provable. Moreover, it has to be consistent. You can't prove one thing and then prove its opposite. Everything within a system has to be consistent with everything else. And so, a couple of decades were spent on developing proofs of the entire body of mathematics, particularly those based in arithmetic. Well, and there was always some tweaking. They'd always like, they'd fix something here and then something would contradict itself there. Or they would discover something like the Goldbach conjecture, which we still haven't proven that. It's sort of outside. We pretty sure it's true, but we can't prove it. Sitting in the back of the room of the Vienna Circle was a guy named Kurt Gödel. Some of you who are old enough to remember back in the 70s, a, a book called Gödel Escher Bach. Um, I discovered yesterday that Roshi knew this book. Was, I was working in a bookstore when I was 16 and won the Pulitzer that year. Uh, Joan is shaking his head. <laughs> um, so Gödel um, was 25 years old, the youngest member of the Vienna Circle. And he was invited in because he was already recognized as brilliant. But he never said very much until he finally spoke up two or three years later. And it turned out that he had been a Trojan horse for platonic ideals. He didn't agree with anything that the inner circle said. In his mind, numbers were not something that we invented. Numbers were something that existed in the platonic realm and were there for us to discover. And there could be things that we could discover through our intuitions, our mathematical intuitions, that maybe could not be proven, but that did not mean they were true. Well, it's one thing to say that, and the Vienna Circle would go, bah, metaphysics. But what he did is he constructed a proof that I'm really not gonna go into now, but it's extraordinarily beautiful in the way that Gothic cathedrals are beautiful. Um, it's often compared to um, the music of Bach. It's sort of, he makes an intuitive leap and then comes round to prove that in fact, 
in every system of mathematics that is consistent with itself, there will always be statements like the Goldbach conjecture that we still don't know if it's one of them, but could be statements like the Goldbach conjecture that are true, but cannot be proven. You can only know they're true by intuition. And if you prove, if you show that every system can be proved, every statement within a system can be proven, it will necessarily contradict itself. You lose the consistency. So the Vienna circle lost on science. There's no separation of subject object. And they lost in mathematics. You cannot both be complete and consistent. And that opens the door for intuitions. Metaphysics comes sweeping back in. And we can use that then to say, well, what does metaphysics teach us about mind? So what a collaborator of mine who's with me, uh, I summarized the book in chapter 12, um, ch summarized the work that we've done together in chapter 12. He's a Kashmiri Shaivist and also has a history of um, studying Vedanta. Um, I do the Jewish mysticism stuff academically and I've been a Zen student for a long time. And we looked at what those strands of thought and experience have to say about the nature of mind. And without going into it in too greater detail, what they all have in common is that they describe the fundamental mind that underlies reality out of which existence comes as being a realm of non-dual pure awareness that is luminous. One of the qualities they all agree on is its luminosity which is what sort of brings us back to the text. It is non-dual, meaning in the realm of the absolute, a Buddhist term, in the realm of the Ein Sof in Hebrew, Lirianic Kabbalah, the fundamental ground of being is luminous awareness that has no subject-object split. The split into subject-object, the world of the relative, happens at the moment of creation. Buddhism doesn't have a lot to say about what happens in that moment. Vedanta doesn't delve into it much either. Uh, Jewish mysticism talks about how that realm of pure luminous awareness, the self, has to contract to create a difference and separation into which an object can be placed, and that becomes the world. So subject-object comes from separation within that non-dual awareness. Shaivism really gets into the details of it. This was their primary question in Shaivist practice. And what they recognize is that subject and object duality exists as potential within that luminous awareness. And it starts to sort of shimmy apart. And they dissect these stages, they call them tattvas. There are the five primary tattvas in which you sort of see subject and object starting to become aware that they have the potential of each other, starting to become aware that, oh, I'm a subject of, that can perceive an object. The object side starts to perceive that it is the object of a subject. They separate further. And in the fifth top, they separate completely. Now you can't have separation until you have something within which you can measure the separation, like distance and time. And once you have distance and time, you have space and time, and that gives you space-time. 
And we know that space-time is an energy-rich vacuum that gives that erupts in the quantum foam that gives rise to subatomic particles, to atoms, to molecules, to the entire universe. So all of this together gives a really coherent single view, both scientifically, philosophically, as well as spiritually, that the ground of being is luminous mind. And that luminous mind, allowing for itself to become aware of itself, gives rise to the existence of the relative that we experience as our everyday world. And then having said all that, if you've managed to take some of it in, I'll just read a couple of more things from our text and see whether it's less obscure. Luminosity has no location. When Buddhas appear in this universe, it does not arise with them. When Buddhas cease, luminosity does not cease. When you are born, luminosity is not born. When you die, luminosity does not die. Buddhas do not, do not have more of it. Sentient beings do not have less. If you are deluded, it is not. If you are enlightened, it is not. It has no rank, no form, and no name. This is the body of totality of all things. You cannot grasp it. You cannot throw it away. It is unattainable. Although it is unattainable, it penetrates this whole body. Which whole body? From the highest heaven to the deepest hell, all realms are illuminated perfectly. This is wondrous and inconceivably subtle luminosity. 